everyone, welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters, and the questers that are Josh and Dan. I am Dan. I'm Josh. And we today are going to talk about all things quizzical because we have email palooza, what, four, five, something? I don't know. Kind of lost track of them. We mentioned in a recent episode that we haven't seen many emails. And so well, everybody went, oh, we asked well, for them. Here you go. We got them. And we got them. That's amazing. Episode 80 last week. We didn't actually call that out. No, but we made it to 80. Episode 80. Yes. So 81. We're closing in on a, on a hundred, which I thought would be impossible to reach, but we're maybe even going to get there. <clears throat> of course, the more emails we get, the closer we get. Uh, so on today's email palooza, let's just jump right in because we have some long emails. So you're going to hear my sad uh, imitation of a voice for a little bit, but we're going to get to them pretty quickly. So, hey, guys, per your request, I would like to hear some dragon biographies on a similar but unrelated note. I would love to hear episodes on horrors and named horror biographies as well. I didn't quite have that slated, but I think we can get there. That was from Scott. Loves the show. That's not a Thank bad you, Scott. idea. I like that idea. Yeah, I, I, we, I do. I mean, it's more content, that's, which is great. <laughs> yeah, I'm all for yeah, that. I think it would probably be a situation where we might do just like two or three major horrors in an episode, because I don't think we could fill like nah. an hour on just one. Now, nah, we'll just tack on a horror every once in a while. Here's how to work this horror in. Here's what they're about, so forth and so on. Don't try to kill them because you'll lose. Things like that. Just just, just things like that. Okay, for this one's from Graham. Long-time listener, and I previously wrote in about my tricky windling party. Quick update. They are still going strong around circle five to six now and currently suffering in par length. Just wanted to say thank you for the podcast, the inspiration and depth it, as it really helps keep the game alive in my mind, which hopefully translates into the game I run. As to the purpose of the email... 100% yes to more information and episodes on dragons. And detail on the great dragons, please. Thank you, Graham. Okay. We're getting there. They're slated. They're coming. Next episode, at least one. And that's what we got. So, otherwise, on to the longer emails. And finally, some, maybe some questions for Josh. Uh, this one's from Lemon Crafton Jr., your friend and mine, who has sent us some lovely art. And the windling he sent in this one is badass. Sorry we can't show you all. I liked it. So I'll drop it in the feed. Yeah, it was awesome. I'll link it to the announcement episode, the announcement, the Twitter post for this yeah. episode going live. Limon needs all the, all the credit he can possibly get for the uh, art that he's thrown our way. Hello, Josh and Dan. I am caught up on the podcast. It is both a good and bad thing. Good because I'm not episodes behind with my remarks. Bad because instead of listening every day, it's now once per week. Well, that does happen. I even got my GM to listen, and I think he might have emailed you already. I wanted to say that I'm really happy with how paths work as an addition to, to a discipline and not as an entire discipline themselves. I've liked be a specialist character to help the party, but always feel drawn to martial disciplines. As a weaponsmith, I want to both contribute to the party, but also want to fight better. And it was always agony in deciding to stay weaponsmith or try to move to warrior or swordmaster after gaining forge armor. After listening to your Brothers of Stone and Woodsman episodes, I looked into Windmaster. Slated to come up soon. And it practically had all the martial aspects I wanted without having to switch to another discipline. Yay! Interestingly enough, the concept behind them, be a serious windling that protects other windlings in the background so they can play free, is a path that my character was going along with before I knew it existed. The group explored a ruined care in which the windling population was singled out and killed separately from the others, and my being weaponsmith was tugging at me to be 
more planning than our, than spur of the moment and a death incident where leaping to action cost me my life and bound me to a cursed thread item, which kept me alive in order to do bad things. Anyway, I just wanted to say that I'm enjoying the paths a lot and can't wait until you get to Windmasters. Very soon, Lemon. Very soon. Two weeks? Yeah, something like that. Well, maybe three or four for production values, but we'll talk about them in well, a couple of weeks. Well, a couple of weeks after them. this. Yeah. After this one. Maybe it, by it, is ne- it is the next one being discussed in our Paths series. Yes. P.S. I found a magic forge and the dwarven ghostsmith bound to it. We worked together to make magic plate armor, which is lightweight, furthering my mentality of being a protector. Well done, sir. Gotta say well done. Cool. Okay. Now onto some questions for Josh, because I think the rest of these are more Josh talking than me. So... Which is a good thing. Okay. This one's from Lee. Lee's a frequent emailer to us. So hi, Lee. How you doing? Hope you're all well. Hi, guys. Hope you are both well. Just some random questions about various stuff. Here we go. Number one, matrix items. A matrix item has a legend point cost based on its tier, where its tier is determined by the matrix level. Is the maximum thread limit for the item also restricted by its tier? i.e. enhanced matrix item is a journeyman tier item for legend point cost. Does it also have a maximum thread rank? Of six. No. The, <laughs> the spell matrix objects function cost-wise and rank-wise just like the talent. They can all, in theory, go up to rank 15, and the cost is just like the talent. So standard matrix starts at 100 and goes up. Enhanced matrix starts at two because it's sort of a journeyman tier and so forth. Gotcha. The only drawback of them is that you need to have that matrix object on your person in order to cast any spells safely out of it. Okay. I think that's sort of clarified in the book. I don't have it right with me, but the intention is that for all intents and purposes, it functions just like the talent that it duplicates. Cool. Number two, paths and similar things from earlier editions is there a possibility that we will see reworked options for light bearers, bodyguards, etc., secret societies, and other nefarious or benign groups with plot hook suggestions? Light bearers, we actually got a question about that a couple of weeks ago and answered that. It is possible that a light bearer's path might be created at some point, as I mentioned the last time it came up. Yeah. We just need to find an appropriate place for it to be for it to be worth the effort in developing out. Yeah. Bodyguard was a discipline from second edition. I think it was actually technically first edition. It was in the Path of Deception adventure from Living Room Games. I don't really know anything about it. Haven't looked at it in 20 years or not quite 20 years. It's been a while. Yeah. So I don't know if there's anything in that that might be suitable for a path. Other secret societies or cults or various other things, if there's an appropriate story place for them and something can be worked up, absolutely. There are not any concrete plans for such at the moment, but the nice thing about the Paths framework is that it does allow more room for expanding those kind of niche applications that that wouldn't really deserve a full discipline. It's absolutely possible, but I don't know. There are not any specific plans for that right at the moment. We may see them. They may be um, possible in setting books from other areas. Again, I have not actually looked at the stuff for Vasgothia or anything like that recently. 
uh, to see if there's anything that's going to show up as a path or the like there. But yeah, cool. Yeah, we're really happy with how they work. And so provide a lot of design space that does not risk so much treading on the toes of disciplines. Very cool. All right. This one's a little bit longer. Number three, a worked example for the interplay between different detection and observation talents and skills, because I often see questions about talents like astral sight, etc. And the following should help give clarity to the situation. So he gave us a specific example. A player character enters a store with their frequent customers. They know that either the owner or apprentice is always front of the shop whilst it's open and there's no one in sight. Here's the setup. There's a thief adept using the silent stride talent behind the counter. They will vault the counter to block any exit through the door out to the street. Behind the closed door leading to the stairs down to the workshop area, a non-adept is waiting for the signal from the thief to enter the main shop area. Behind an adjacent closed door leading to the storeroom and stairs up to the living quarters is a warrior adept using the silent stride skill. Upstairs is the store owner being threatened into silence by another non-adept. In the basement is the still warm corpse of the apprentice, which is being investigated by a curious ally spirit. How would different disciplines and talent combinations come into play for the PC in this scenario? Danger sense, half magic, perception, awareness, astral sight, spell life sight, blah, blah, blah. All that fun stuff. That's kind of a long one. No pressure. This feels like one of those like college level science things where they've got this diagram on your test. Mm-hmm. And you're like, person is here. Here are the various things. What are the blah, 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 blah. Like, there's yeah. a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. Okay. We can break it down by sentence if you want. Well, so so there is a thief adept using stealthy stride behind yeah. the counter. Mm-hmm. They will vault the counter to block any exit through the door out to the street. Behind the closed door leading to the stairs down to the workshop area... A non-adept is waiting for the signal from the thief to enter the main shop area. Behind an adjacent closed door leading to the storeroom and stairs up to the living quarters is a warrior adept using the stealthy stride skill. Upstairs is store owner being threatened into silence by another non-adept. In the basement is a still warm corpse of the apprentice, which is being investigated by a curious ally spirit. Okay, I guess my first question, and this is the one thing that is not actually... Yeah. Posited in this example. <laughs> Where is the character that is doing the sensing? Mm-hmm. Are they outside? Okay, well, so the, like, the, the like, it seems, right? So the player character enters, enters the store. And there's so they enter inside. the store. Thief Adept is behind the counter. I assume hiding behind the counter, hence the, 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 the use of Stealthy Stride. Yep. They would vault the counter to block any exit through the door out to the street. Okay. So they would, just in case. And they know that either the owner or apprentice is always in that front area mm-hmm. while the shop is open. So they yeah. come in and there's no one in sight. Okay. Danger Sense is actually kind of the last thing that would come into play. He lists it first, but that's actually kind of the last thing that comes yeah. into play. Because Danger Sense is really like a second chance to avoid ambush. Mm-hmm. All of the other ways that he could notice what's going on failed. Yeah. And combat ensued. He could, if the adept had danger sense, they could use danger sense to potentially be able to act normally in that sort of surprise round. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest one. That only comes into play if everything else fails. Yeah. If something's going to come to the player character, 
that's when they would, you know, roll danger sense to see if they're aware of it. Right. The only way that I could really think of half magic potentially applying would be nethermantic half magic to possibly detect the ally spirit that's down in the basement. I, however, given the circumstances, would not be inclined to allow that because it's sort of effectively in a, in a different space. It's yeah. behind a door, down a stairs, down in the basement. Mm -hmm. In theory, maybe it could, but given the exact circumstances right now, like that is a lower on the priority of what does the character need to know about what's going on. Agreed. Generally speaking, half magic, there's not really anything else that I can think of where half magic would come into play given the, the scenario. Perception slash awareness, that would be the initial thing. If the adept comes into the room and is like, I don't see weaponsmith or apprentice here, yeah. what's going on, they roll perception slash awareness, yeah. that would be contested by or potentially to beat the stealthy, stealthy stride, stride results of the thief adept behind the counter. Mm -hmm. And potentially the warrior upstairs using the, the stealthy stride skill. And really it could potentially apply to the closed door where the person is waiting to come into the main shop area. Yeah. Those are the three characters that you would potentially be detecting there. If the awareness result, and I'm just going to say awareness instead of perception slash awareness. Yes. If the awareness result beats the stealthy stride result of the warrior or the thief, or even though they don't have the talent or skill, you could use the base dex step. I don't know that it's technically defaultable. You could use the dex step of the person hiding behind the door at the top of the stairs as well as a target number to see if you detected them. I would probably, if they were trying to be quiet and they're behind a door, I probably wouldn't just use the base decks. I might require an additional success or bump the difficulty up a little bit or something like that. I would too. So that initial awareness test, if they come in, it's like, I don't see them. I stop. Can I tell what's going on based on the results of that test compared to those results? And I don't know necessarily that I would even roll stealthy stride mm -hmm. i would just use the 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 total step number as the base difficulty just to reduce yeah. the amount of, of die rolling but that's a call that i would probably make in the moment at the table based on how things were going yeah but that would be the initial thing it's like okay if you didn't detect the thief behind the counter but you did beat the one for the warrior upstairs you hear some movement upstairs at that point the Character takes an action, in this case, just trying to sense what's going on. You provide feedback, the response to that, then they make another choice. At that point, it's assuming they're still just inside the door. Oh, I hear movement upstairs. Well, I'm going to go to the stairs and go up. At yeah. that point, whatever the next thing that happens, happens, and your perceptive stuff, no, like the other stuff, doesn't matter. It's changed, yeah. Right, the, the circumstances changed. There's another door leading up. Like, if they know that that goes up to the living quarters, they might head up there. And based on the exact layout of the room, they might pass by the thief hiding behind the counter and the thief might vault. Yeah. Basically, does the character continue to attempt to sense what's going on, detect what's going on, or do they take some other kind of action? Yeah. 
that's the first thing is that perception awareness, target numbers and, and go from there. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing he didn't, he didn't mention was like heat sight. Cause I'm, I'm assuming well, this is like really, broad daylight. They're open, low light vision. Yeah. I, <laughs> from a game mechanical standpoint. Yes. Low light vision and heat sight, really what they do is they counteract darkness penalties. Mm-hmm. I would not say, oh, you get a bonus to your awareness because you have heat sight and you can detect the heat of the... It's possible that you could use that as a... I wouldn't adjust their awareness. Yeah. You could, if you want, use that as a narrative explanation for how their awareness test was successful. Mm -hmm. That's separate from... What's going on? We're not, we, like, he did not say, oh, it's dark in here. We haven't nope. talked about darkness penalties. We haven't done any of nope. that. No. I'm trying to keep I this just, simple. Because he said, if there's anything relevant, otherwise feel free to add it. So I figured just in case. Yeah. Heat sight is a catch-all. Because somebody's hiding behind the counter and hiding behind the door and hiding upstairs. And then the spirit's downstairs. None of that would trip your heat sight because they're all blocked by something. Right. Right, right, right. Moving on. Astral sight. I don't know. Astral sight, you could kind of go a couple of different ways. Basically, the question becomes, at its most basic, astral Mm -hmm. sight doesn't let you see through stuff. I agree. Uh, Assuming that the thief and the warrior upstairs and the person hiding behind the door, assuming that they are all sort of out of sight. And I know I've talked in the past about astral sight isn't actually just sight. It just translates the magical whatever into a way that you can understand. Yeah. But generally speaking, you can't use astral sensing to sense through other things. Uh, I could potentially, I don't know, just straight astral sight probably wouldn't do anything on its own there. I agree. Astral sight with the astral sense spell, assuming that they had it up ahead of time and were going on and using it. I would probably allow that to maybe detect the basically sort of use it as a substitute for an awareness test to to potentially see the thief because the thief isn't really in a, an enclosed area. They're just kind of down behind the counter. Yeah. Astral sense is supposed to improve the use of, of the astral sight ability mm-hmm. behind a door in a separate hallway upstairs or to the downstairs. There's no way for the, for lack of a better term, waves or energy of the astral sight talent to get to those places to detect them. Yeah. Keep in mind as well that Stealthy Stride as a sort of sneaky talent is sort of intended to make it difficult to sense. So you Mm -hmm. would still, at least the way I play it, that you would still need to overcome the target number to detect them with astral sight. Yes. So I play it too. Astral Sight is not a, oh, I easily get around stealth, because that really doesn't make sense that you would have a magical stealth talent um, that would not be designed to help thwart magical sensing. Life Sight has its own rules. Uh, Life Sight is a specialized kind of astral sensing that does allow you to see through non-living stuff. So with that, you would potentially be able to see the depending on the construction of the place, mm-hmm. be able to see through, you'd be able to see the thief potentially behind the counter, the person in the stairwell, the individuals upstairs, the spirit downstairs, dead body, whether it's recently dead or not, technically probably shouldn't be detectable by life sight. 
in that situation, really, the most comprehensive sense of what's going on is going to come from life sight. Mm -hmm. General awareness is sort of number two. And then based on the actions that the character takes, danger sense may or may not come into play. If they succeed in their awareness test and they're aware of things there, danger sense is they're not going to be surprised. So danger sense wouldn't kick in be a a factor. Yeah. But how prepped is that? If they they are a magician walking into the shop, how prepped are they to have life sight already woven, you know, ready for the matrix and need need to. (laughs) This is a friendly place. So the astral sight talent and life sight, those are both talents. Oh, okay. Sorry. So those can be done at a moment's notice. Yes. The astral sense spell. That's what I was referring to. Sorry. There's a lot thrown in this email question. So I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that's, that's fine. That's great. I, (laughs) we like specifics. It's, it's fantastic. (laughs) I just got to check. Astral sense has two threads. Yep. It's going to require you to weave at least one round, even if you have it in an enhanced matrix. Mm -hmm. It's going to require at least one round of weaving before you can cast the spell and potentially get the effect off. Yeah. Depending on what your Game Master characters are doing in that situation, you may start weaving and they go, oh, poo, some kind of spellcasting is going on, <laughs> and take action in response to that. Yeah. But the Astral Sight and Life Sight are both talents and so could be twigged off right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And obviously, whether you'd be able to do those or not would depend largely on whether you actually have those abilities or not. <laughs> Yeah, life sight is a simple action. Astral sense, uh, astral sight is a simple action. Mm-hmm. So those, you'd be able to pop those off with no problem. Yeah. Obviously, rank of the appropriate ability matters as well. We didn't get into distances here, but life sight is rank times 10 yards. If you only got rank one, I mean, that's 30 feet. So mm-hmm. probably cover most of it, but yeah, that's sure. another factor. But that's generally it. Uh, like into that situation... Basic awareness right off the bat, if the adept wanted to use life sight or astral sight in conjunction or in place of that awareness test, I would probably just handle it as an awareness test and flavor what they learned based on what they did to try and and discern that. Understanding that just a raw astral sight probably wouldn't detect anything because it doesn't let you see through the desk or the walls or the doors or anything like that. If you happened to have the Astral Sense spell up at the time, then maybe, but Life Sight is probably the best alternate detection to go into that situation with. So, okay. Thank you, Lee, for the lengthy question and the lengthy discussion that that generated. So on to the next, because this is, again, email Palooza. I'm going to call it five. Why not? I don't have who sent this one down. I'm sorry, but I'm going to lose your name. Which one is it? Yes, please. To be more specific, I think what I'd like to hear more about are those dragons that GMs might actually be able to use. For example, Asante and Night Sky, since they aren't great dragons and have a history of interacting with name givers. Two, Charcoal Grin, because of the potential ability to interact in par length. Icewing, Mountain Shadow, Divil Ganon, and the Denerastus because of their involvement in the meta plot. Also possibly Usan, Aban, and Earthroot. So far, he's not leaving anybody out, really. And Alamaze is cool for history, but less important for current ability. Oh, this but- is Jesse. Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Jesse Furman. He does have a random question. Does Fossa have the ability and or inclination to release little treasures? The middle book of the Aina Isgurath trilogy by Caroline Spector. 
My understanding is that it was only ever released in French, and it would be really cool to see it in English. French and German, actually, I believe. There you go. Inclination, absolutely. <laughs> Ability, yeah. Working on it. That is a matter of time and resources. Of which time is the yes. resource? I would like to see it out. Uh, it is something that has sort of been on the list of things, like even back in the red brick days, was yeah. something that was being worked on. Yes, it absolutely would be really cool to see it in English. It is on on my list of dream projects to actually get to and complete. Josh will be Josh will die happy if he gets that thing done. <laughs> Does care, yeah, I got a um, a fan took and did a translation of the German mm -hmm. into English and sent it to me. I've kind of looked at it and it's not bad, but suffers from the problem that any kind of translation, translation suffers from, which you is want. that there are things that don't translate quite as well. So it's, it's work to get it done. My question is, doesn't Caroline Spector have the original in English? Uh, is she contactable? <laughs> I don't know. That might make life a lot easier if she's got the original manuscript. I, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's one of those things that's like in the list of priorities of things. Oh, yeah. Like there are other things that are higher up and just that one keeps, keeps falling, kind of getting pushed to the back burner. Fair enough. No worries. Sim simple answer. Inclination, absolutely. Ability, uh, maybe story. if I get cloned. <laughs> <laughs> Again, time is the main matter. Okay, so on to this long, long email from Insaniac99. And... This is the Insaniac. So good morning, Dan and Josh. Thank you again for hosting such a great podcast. I do have, do not have any questions, but I do have two comments after listening to episode 79 that will hopefully provide feedback and good discussion respectively. The first is that you commented on not getting any emails about covering the great dragons for my, for my part, at least I did not comment because of, well, I do love hearing about the great dragons. I'm also very much enjoying everything you are covering. And it was mentioned that you would cover the great dragons eventually. This combined with knowing your alternate that you alternate subjects, for example, that the past few episodes alternate between paths and general dragon information. As I didn't know what was planned instead of covering the great dragons, the proposition as presented made me believe the choice would be between alternating great dragon episodes and paths, paths and an unknown subject, or the unknown subject and great dragons. Without knowing what the other alternate alternate topic choice was, I found myself stuck in indecision and decided to let everyone else who had more firm opinions comment instead. Second and finally, as I believe many new GMs will be listening to this podcast and adventure and campaign design was asked about, I think this is a perfect time to give some of the advice I give to every game master who is starting out and asks advice about planning adventures and campaigns. In retrospect, I realize this is a little long, so please cut this letter here and use it for an if when you do an email palooza about GMing. Shall we stop it okay. here or just... We'll pause there because I want to go back and talk about the first <laughs> bit there. Completely understandable. Yes. Well, if you aren't talking about dragons, what are you going to be talking about? Yes. Part of the idea was that, and we may not have been explicit about this, if there is something that you would like us to talk about other than great dragons, instead, let us know what that is. Yeah, but it's okay. Because we're, we're just slated to, yeah. Out of those options, it would have been between paths and great dragons or paths and something else, mm -hmm. with the idea being if there is something else that you would rather we 
cover before we get to dragons, then let us know so that we can try and work that in. And just in general, if there is a topic that you want us to cover, Mm -hmm. let us know so that we can either sort of address it in an email episode or maybe work it into our rough production schedule in terms (laughs) of the subject for a given episode. Fair. So there's that. Okay. On to the rest. I think the ability to improvise on the fly is one of the most important things a Game Master can learn how to do, but there are a few rules I have to help create a toolbox that may work. Make that work. Rule one, don't plan stories, plan scenes. A story requires specific action from the players. If your plot hinges upon the players saving someone, or them not not saving someone, or any specific action, there is a high chance that they will do something else just to spite you. So don't plan big stories. Instead, plan scenes. For example, don't plan that the heroes will chase the villain who leads them on a grand adventure with all these specific details and it finally comes into a climax atop a mountain. It's hard for me to even write a plot at this point. Instead, the heroes will see the villains escape. You have some cool scenes prepared like a monster attack or the battle at the end. You have those scenes ready and you have an idea of how they might get used, but they might not get used in the way you think. Yeah, that's all good. Definitely don't plan stories. That's a great piece of general GMing advice. Yeah. For Earth Dawn or, or for any other game. That way, railroading lies. Oh, this is what I had in mind for what's going on, and I'm going to kind of force the group to yeah. follow my <laughs> ideas, my, my plot points. I call that shoehorning. You're shoehorning them over here. I've alternately heard instead of planning scenes of planning situations that you know who the Game Master characters, the NPCs in the situation are, what their goals are, and what they will do to advance those goals absent interference from the player characters. Yeah. So that you maybe have a timeline going on. There are various tools that you can institute to keep track of that sort of thing. Whether you have a like a specific calendar, if nothing happens by X campaign date, you can take a page. There is a, a really cool little mechanic that I haven't used a whole lot because I haven't had the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. It's called clocks. In a certain situation when characters take actions or when a certain thing happens, there's an escalation. The next step in the process happens that it's not necessarily keyed to a specific time or calendar date or something like that. It's keyed as a response to an action that the player characters take. Gotcha. Bigger picture. Yeah. The amount of one of the big tricks of game mastering is trying to balance efficiency of prep time. You don't want to go necessarily and prepare a whole bunch of stuff that is not going to be used if your time is precious. The good thing is, is that if you do prep something that doesn't get used, you can set it aside and maybe bring it back later. That prep is not ultimately wasted. Um, You might be able to change the the set dressing or alter some of the situation without too much trouble. Yeah. But also different people have different tolerances of railroading. There's the old quantum ogre problem, as it's sometimes called, (laughs) where if the player characters come upon a fork in the road and you had planned that they were going to fight an ogre, that... Whichever path they take, they will encounter that ogre. Some people really don't like that because it gives the false illusion of choice 
that is a whole thing that I'm not going to get into more deeply here. Basically, I feel as long as you are not actively contradicting information that might have come before, if you have indicated to the group that down the right-hand path are the ogres and they go left, you shouldn't have the ogres be there instead, because at that point you are breaking the authenticity of the setting. Mm -hmm. If they have done some legwork and have some idea of what's going on, then... You don't want to contradict that unless there is something built into the game where those are not like, oh, this was just a rumor, various other things. The type of game you're running, whether you're running a much more sandboxy open world, like the players just kind of wander around and encounter things and the story kind of develops from there, or whether you're running a little bit more of a narrative focused game, like say the the sort of thing that you have in the Legends of Barsave Adventures, where it Mm -hmm. is a little bit more structured in terms of what's going on. All that sort of stuff should be hammered out or at least discussed in your setup in your session zero in your initial play situation Mm -hmm. it is perfectly fine to discover as you are going along that a particular style is not suiting you or, or working for your group particularly well it's okay to revisit that and to say hey guys this is kind of what i prepped especially for less experienced game masters it's generally easier to have a lot more prep stuff ready yeah improvisation is an incredibly valuable skill to learn as a gm and most gming advice stuff don't talk about it very much Mm -hmm. i recommend very strongly there's actually um a book out i forget whether it was from evil hat or some other publisher called improv for gamers Hmm. there's uh actually a second volume that is in the works that is going to be coming out but just the idea of really basic improv concepts like yes and and various other things look into that the ability to improvise or even just hold on guys i need to think about this for a moment take five minutes Mm -hmm. figure out what's going on especially if they're throwing you a curveball or something unexpected i need a couple of minutes to figure this out (laughs) let's take a quick break i'll come up with something and go from there it can really help if you have a situation defined, you've got your NPCs defined and you know what their motivations and their goals and what they might do are so that when those plans get interfered with by player characters, yeah, you at least have a sense of what the response to that might be. Yes. My game master always says that my party and I always kind of take whatever he throws at us and go off in the other opposite freaking direction. He's like, I planned for yeah. this, this, and this, and you guys did none of it. So <clears throat> that happens. Uh, rule two. The other thing is (laughs) another sort of semi-dirty GM trick. If you've got a group that you've been playing with for a while. Yeah. You start to know what they are likely to do. Correct. I have run for, especially my experience as a a convention session GM, Mm -hmm. comes in very handy because I have run the same adventure for multiple groups. I'm good enough at this point that I know what the most likely choices are and can kind of have those planned out ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And then comfortable enough with my familiarity with the game system that if something really off the wall happens, I can just make something up and go with it. Yeah. Another dirty GM trick, you know what buttons you can press to get your group to do (laughs) certain things. Exactly. Rule two, the three clue rule. Anything you want your players to figure out, have three clues to point to it. 
Also, anything the players should complete have three ideas on how they can do it. If they need a treasure, can they talk, sneak, fight? If they need information from someone, can they negotiate for it? Use brute force, sneak in and steal it. Need to get through a door? Could they bash it down, pick the lock, or maybe find a key somewhere else? Be flexible for the player's solutions. They should be able to come up with things you didn't think of, and you should be able to work it into a solution. This doesn't mean that the solution has to be easy, or that solving a scene one way instead of another won't have repercussions. Especially if you're talking like a kind of mystery or investigation plot, you probably want to have about twice as many clues as you think you might need, because there's no guarantee that the players will recognize that they are all clues Mm -hmm. or necessarily roll well enough. I am of the opinion that if you are going to have awareness tests, if they're searching an area or whatever, at least provide the minimum to allow them to move forward. Don't dead end a, a story or adventure or whatever on the, on the chance of a, bad roll because bad rolls happen. And so kind of taking some ideas from other games Mm -hmm. as the GM, be a fan of the player characters. You kind of want them to succeed. It doesn't have to be easy. No, but you kind of want them to succeed. You want them to face challenges, but you want them to overcome them. Assuming that your table environment is not one that is a potentially lethal sandboxy kind of thing. (laughs) But you want your player characters to succeed, to face challenges, but to ultimately, hopefully prevail, possibly at a cost. Yes. Multiple clues. Yes. Think of different ways that the group would be most likely to solve a puzzle or situation that they might come to. But also, getting back to improvisation, kind of connected to the earlier question, if they come up with something that you didn't think of, unless you can think of some legitimate reason why it wouldn't work that that's within the narrative mm-hmm. even do a maybe a, a no but where oh no this doesn't but maybe this a- avenue or f- kind of find some way to take their ideas and incorporate them and and work them in yeah yes it doesn't necessarily mean that the solution has to be easy or that there won't necessarily be repercussions maybe even not necessarily right away but down the road if you're running a longer game based on what they might do yeah Rule number three, opponent motivations. Everything has a motivation. Monsters and NPCs are not mindless automata, and if they are mindless automata, they are almost guaranteed to be controlled by someone who isn't. Monsters are just animals that have the same motivations your dog does. They want food, shelter, safety, take care of their after they're young, etc. Villains aren't villains. To be villains, they have a motivation, a goal they want to complete. They will work on those goals even without the player's interaction. The story comes from where the villain goals and the player character's goals intersect or align. Yeah, we talked about that (laughs) just a couple of minutes ago. Yes. (laughs) Understand your characters, what their motivations are, what they will be doing. Yeah, the bad guy's going to do what the bad guys do, whether the good guys show up or not. Uh, Rule three, subsection A. Most villains are heroes in their own mind. Villains often feel wronged or trying to fix things or have another way to spin their plan such that they look like a hero in their own mind. Mostly. Mostly. (laughs) It comes down to motivations. The motivations can be absolutely awful. Mm -hmm. I want to not caveat that, but I want to hang a little addendum to that Mm -hmm. because I'm not super crazy uh, about the idea of the the villain feels like the hero of their own story. Yeah, kind of. 
but that doesn't mean that they're not doing bad things. And I kind of want to take a Just great a bit of philosophy from yeah. uh, the late, great Sir Terry Pratchett, who summed up evil in such an amazing way. I think the actual expression was not evil, but was sin. Yes. But the same basic concept is when you start treating people like things. Yeah, I'm okay with that. That dehumanization, you know, you talk about Theron slavery, for instance, and the knots that sometimes you must tie yourself mentally into in order to mm -hmm. justify yeah. an abhorrent practice like that, just as one example. Mm-hmm. No, because evil is a choice. You have to decide to do bad things to other people, and that's a choice that you've made. So the bad guys made a choice somewhere to do that wrong. Rule number four, know when to break all the rules, even these. As Barbosa said in Pirates of the Caribbean, the code is more of what you'd call guidelines. Now you have all the pieces. Yes. It is time to put them together. Take scenes you want to have to create a bullet points of a story. You can work forwards, start the story, or work backwards. Start with the scene you want to work up to and create plot points in, that your story will hit. For example, McEvil lost their loved one and wants to resurrect them. To do this, they will destroy, sacrifice, an entire city. McEvil needs to get the spell needed for this. McEvil needs to get the components to cast the spell. McEvil needs to perform the spell at a special place and time. If McEvil decides... Uh, succeeds, then the town dies and his loved one is resurrected. Or are they? Players have multiple chances to try and stop them, the prep work, or see the story in general. If they choose not to act, they get consequences. City dying, perhaps it wasn't a resurrection spell, but a horror summoning spell. Flesh each of these steps out with a few things on how the villain plans to do it and how the players can find and interfere, and that may or may not mean fully stopping the plans. Bam! You have a short session or campaign. Now, create a few of those. Now interweave them. Instead of playing McEvil all the way through nonstop, take a break and start on the evil R us plot points you have. Don't keep too many active, but don't necessarily have only one going either. When you do that, while the design of each part is simple because you have so so much hinges on, on what the players choose to do and how they choose to do it, it ends up being a much more involved story than you and the players will hopefully remember for a long time. I hope that is helpful. Sparks for the discussion. Thank you again. Great podcast. Insaniac 99. Yeah. That is all, that is Sage all good advice. stuff. Yeah. Love it. Okay. A few more emails because we're running short on time. Actually, we have two more emails exactly. So let's see if we can squeeze these in and get this thing under 75 minutes. Hello, Josh and Dan. I have a question about drakes and their name giver form. The book says that when a drake is in its name giver form, it, quote, loses all dragon-like physical abilities, though its magical powers remain, end quote. Shapeshifting then goes on to talk about how they often advance in one or more disciplines etc. My question is this, what is the starting point when you start to build out their adept details? For instance, say I want to create a Drake NPC that has a human name giver form and some elementalist and scout circles. Do I start with a character that has the attribute steps of a Drake, or do I start as though I'm building a human PC from scratch? Um, I'll let Josh think oh on that boy. one for a quick sec. What about defenses, armor ratings, unconsciousness, and death ratings, wound thresholds, yada, yada, yada. I searched through my fourth edition books and couldn't find any examples of Drake's in name giver form to see any stat block examples. Thank you for the yeah, information. Yeah, because there weren't any. <laughs> that was by design uh, and well, or space, no. space constraints. Yeah. But thank you for the any information in this regard, Joe. Okay, Joe. Let's see what we can help you out with. Okay. Yeah. Lacking any other clarification at the moment yes the first place that i am going for this is 
the first edition adventure Shattered Pattern, which yeah. features a Drake in it. And I want to see how it gets handled here. I often reference all the books in my position as well, just because if someone else did the legwork for me, <laughs> I'll let them do the legwork for me. All right. In Shattered Pattern, the stat blocks for the Drakes that are NPCs in that adventure are given Drake stat blocks then with a list of the talents that they have access to when they're in their name giver form. Mm -hmm. Those talent ranks are added to their Drake steps. Attributes, yeah. Yeah, their their attribute steps, which is fine. And, and it's perfectly fine to handle them that way. The only issue is those make their overall step numbers very high. Ridiculously high. <laughs> Meaning that it is going to be fairly clear to anybody maybe that is paying attention that they are more powerful than a normal name giver, even one of a, you know, upper journeyman or low warden tier, yeah. mm -hmm. master tier adept. So that is one option. Another option is to have them with sort of completely separate stat blocks for their name giver form and their Drake form. That maybe rather than building them out as you would build a player character in terms of how many attribute value points they get and stuff like that, that you just kind of assign what seems appropriate and maybe have them be a little bit higher than they otherwise would. And that largely depends on, do you want the Drake to be able to operate secretly? Is it okay that their sort of Drake nature be basically revealed by the fact that they're rolling step upper 20s and low 30s, which seems really weird for a sixth sixth circle adept yeah mm -hmm. so there's that that's the consideration i can make arguments both ways there is another related example that i could get into but i won't because it's kind of spoilery for the legends of bar save series fair okay thank you joe for the question on drake npcs uh good luck with that let us know how it works because we were interested, of course, to see how, you, how what you did and exactly how that was pulled off. Uh, last one from Aaron. Also long, but he has got some questions for Josh. Hi, guys. Been keeping up to date with the episodes. Fantastic work on dragons, by the way. I have dismissed the idea of including dragons in my game due to them being so powerful. But having listened to the past few episodes dedicated to them, I am convinced that some kind of inclusion in the future will come about. They are just so full of flavor, not just a stat block like any other encounter can be. A puppet master behind the scenes sounds like a lot of fun. And in answer to your question, yes, I would love to hear more about individual dragons. It will likely aid me in deciding which of them will play around with my group. And I like the idea of a Trevar scavenger hunt. My players are pretty close to Trevar right now. I am half tempted to drop some hints about returning. So down to the questions. <laughs> well played, Josh. Number one, are you planning an episode mini-series on horrors similar to how you did with dragons? When such a great job done with dragons, I think it would be a shame to pass over some of the game's most unique creatures. Well, Talked we about now. that earlier. Well, <laughs> It'll be we on the now. list. <laughs> uh, number two, the same for Thera and their current political standing in Barsave. Just how big an influence do they still hold in Barsave, and where are you most likely to encounter this? That is a good thing to put on the list to talk about maybe in a future episode down the line. It is actually on the list as we get closer to the publication of a new book on Thera or something along those. Uh, oh, okay. That goes off yeah. the bar save map. Yes. So I put a pin in that one. We're going to get there. 
Um, three, more of a mechanics question. I am a huge fan of the declaration stage of combat. This is, for me, the only way that combat truly works in Earth Dawn. However, I am continually encountering people that do not use it, and I cannot understand how. Even my own players do not like the length of time combat can take and to ask if it is really needed. My answer, of course, is hell yes. While I was trying to figure out a way of removing it from the combat to please my players, and I realized that there is ob no obvious declaration stage in Legends of Earth Dawn either. Is this simply a case of clever editing? Or do you not use it? And if not, how do you resolve the effects of certain talents and combat options like aggressive attack or acrobatic defense that clearly have round, long benefits or penalties? So we generally, broadly speaking, don't really use it a lot. We very, very rarely use... Well, I don't... I'm not going to say that. Ideally, we should be declaring our combat options like aggressive attack or defensive stance yeah. at the beginning of the round before we have initiative rolled. Ideally, that's what you should be doing. I think just for the compacting of the episodes, though, that might need to be... I know it doesn't get edited out because we don't no. go over it like every round. Yeah. I don't pay much attention to it because I'm playing a spellcaster and I don't use aggressive attack or defensive stance Yeah, that much. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that Gareth, our Windmaster, has used aggressive attack in the yes. past. I know he has, but I don't think... I know he has, and he tends to... I recognize the value of declarations and saying what's going on. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on there. <laughs> yeah. I kind of recognize the need to go through what people are doing. I don't like to nail it down too much. I know that some people, like... If you're playing with a map, if you've got figures out and you're kind of doing a, a battle map kind of situation, it's yeah. kind of a little bit easier... But I don't generally like penalizing people who have lower initiatives and will generally be acting late in the round mm -hmm. by them declaring something. And then the situation changes to the point where they change what they want to do. Yeah. But at the same time, their initiative is slower. They're acting slower than other people. There should be kind of a cost to that. Yeah. At my own games, I tend to run general declarations like are you going to be attacking are you going to be weaving a thread are you going to be casting a spell what combat options are you going to use i think it's also better if you declare before initiative is rolled because the point he makes uh, in the next sentence or two um defines that because if you're if you ask for the declaration before initiative that way you don't know who's acting first because you're not trying to coordinate yeah. that on purpose so his point is in the next paragraph, it seems neglectful to say, oh, well, how much does it really matter? If I am attacking and I know I'm going last, I'm going to choose the aggressive attack option every time to make sure I maximize my output. And as I am the last to attack, there is no risk involved doing, doing so due to the reduction in my defense. Right. So, so what he's saying is that if you are acting late and you don't declare beforehand at the beginning mm -hmm. of the round that you're going to be doing aggressive attack, yeah, I don't suffer because my defense isn't reduced until my turn in the round and I'm going last. So I might as well take that point of strain. Yeah. And, and maximize your, my point is that if you're going to be doing an attack, like a, a combat option, that's going to be affecting things that should be declared at the beginning of the round. I agree with you. Yeah. If you're going to go aggressive, you should say so at the beginning because that's going to affect your defense ratings for the round. Yes, Acrobatic because... defense 
doesn't take effect until your action anyway. Mm-hmm. That's not one that I feel that you need to to declare ahead of time. My general feeling is basic intention, attack, weaving a thread, casting a spell, going over to try and knock the gem off of the pedestal, whatever kind of yeah. general action that you might be doing, and any combat options, aggressive attack, defensive stance that might affect how things go. I agree, because for, for the, the, rest the combat round. summary, page 371 of the player's handbook, is one, declare your intentions. Two, determine your, your initiative. So it should be done in that order. If you read the summary part of the declare intentions, yeah, it does say general intentions and any combat options. Okay. I understand, especially as you start getting into higher <laughs> circles and there are so many talents and oh, yeah. options and so forth that can be available in multiple roles that a character might be making on their turn that yeah. you want to try and get through stuff as quickly as possible in order to like keep things moving and not have people get bored. No, my, my game master wanted to start since the fourth edition just came out about a year for us. He wanted to start this whole new campaign on fourth edition only. So we all had to make new characters and he wanted to run it rules as written and see if there were any holes in it. Cause it hadn't been play tested. Blah. Fight us. The main thing he wanted to make sure of is we followed that exactly, which is declare your intentions and do your combat options because there are, he was watching a video on somebody who was saying, yeah, for D&D, get rid of your initiative, run a movie scene instead, have everyone just do the, do the up close action or the far away action. He was just saying D&D doesn't need initiative. There's nothing dependent upon it. Earth Dawn, there's so much dependent upon initiative. Anyway, that was the video he was watching. And I was like, yeah, let's just run Earth Dawn as it's written and be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so don't try and modify it. D&D, as written, 5th edition, is a cyclic initiative. Yeah. Which is that you roll initiative once at the beginning mm-hmm. of the combat, and that determines the order and barring special abilities from certain opponents, legendary actions, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The order of actions is is fixed and you just kind of cycle through that round after round after round, mm-hmm. which is fine. Yeah. And all of like durations and everything are are triggered based on the tick in the initiative count of the person that did it or is affected or whatever. That's fine. The drawback, the, the problem of trying to roll that over to Earth Dawn, which I've heard many people discuss <laughs> over the years. <laughs> yes. Is that you have talents like Tiger Spring, like Air Dance, like Cobra Strike, yes. uh, to th- think of just three off the top of my head, mm-hmm. that modify and or affect initiative in some way. Yeah. If you're going to redo the initiative system, you need to figure out how those are going to work with that new system. Mm-hmm. And all other talents that do that. Right. Like There are a whole bunch blowing. of different... Yeah, there are there are a whole bunch of different initiative systems out there, mm-hmm. some a lot more strict than others, you know, some super complex, like even more complex than Earthdawn's. Earthdawn's is actually not that complex in the grand scheme <sighs> of things. Not really. Take a look at initiative in second edition Exalted. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating system because one of the things that combat does in that is that certain attacks actually will affect your opponent's initiative bumping them up or or down Mm -hmm. usually yeah basically initiative at that point becomes like another resource track that is kind of spent as you do things Mm -hmm. intricate it's really cool but really weird and, and can be tough to get your head wrapped around if you're not used to it 
Yeah. And then you've got something that's like super relatively freeform, like Monsters of the Week, which is mm-hmm. a, a powered by the apocalypse game, which doesn't actually have initiative as it is. Yeah. That the keeper, the game master, if you are in an action scene, in a combat scene, mm-hmm. try and manage the flow of combat, giving each character a turn before yeah. another character goes again. But the mm-hmm. exact order is all kind of determined by the narrative. It's helped that in that system, the the game master doesn't actually roll dice. Mm-hmm. Everything is triggered off of the dice that the players roll. And so if a player, if a character is rolling an attack and they get like a certain result, they may suffer damage as a result of that roll because yes, they hit the monster, but the monster hit them back. Yeah. There's so much connected to the moving parts of, of the system in Earth Dawn mm-hmm. that basic modification to the to initiative is harder than it might seem. Yeah. Because you basically need to figure out what's being done with these special talents that modify initiative and allow fast characters to go even faster. Mm-hmm. I'm so. sure there's a solution. I just have not really put my brain to trying to figure out what that might be. Yeah, fair enough. I don't have any other suggestions other than um, the the other players shouldn't know who's going first because you're all trying to act simultaneously. So you shouldn't get to know that you're going to go last and therefore modify what you're going to do unless you're choosing to hold your action based upon someone else's other action. That's the only thing I can do for a house rule. That's it. That's my two cents. Yeah, that's a that's a like figure out what's going on kind of thing. Like it is possible to run earth on combat a little bit more free form mm-hmm. in terms of being a little bit looser with regards to declarations, assuming that your group is staying true to the narrative of what's happening in the scene. And as the game master trying to rein in that, that metagaming thing that he's worried about yeah, that he mentions there at the end, Oh, if I'm acting last, why wouldn't I decide to go aggressive that round, but mm-hmm. not mention it until my turn? I mean, if you've got people who are cheesing it like that, then you need to <laughs> to rein that in. Agreed. Because yeah, you can't you can't get the bonus when it, when you go. If you've you got a situation the where the combat is the situation, like who's squared off against who and what's going on, is is relatively static. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, even if you're not necessarily going hardcore, like hex map, tracking the exact position of things, just having a general idea. Yeah. You know, even if it's just like loosely sketched out of of what's going on and so forth. And does this make sense in the narrative that they'd be able to do this? Yeah. Fair. Thank you, Aaron, and everybody else who emailed us for the lovely conversation. We hopefully killed about an hour and change of your time. Uh, Hopefully answered some of your questions. If we have... Given you more questions than you have received in answers, please send them to us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. We will get to those on the next email palooza or whenever we get them from you. And until next time, folks, um, keep asking questions about your legend. Good night, everybody.